You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day you have made. Indeed, the heavens declare your glory to us. And so, Lord, as we come to the end of the day, we pray that this time in your word would be fruitful and that we would listen to what you're saying and, Lord, that your spirit would work such a way that it would make a great difference in our lives for our good, but above all, for your great glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, one of the things about preaching through a book of the Bible is that you don't get to pick uh, the passages that come up. They just come up as they do. And uh, oftentimes there are passages that will be divvied out uh, in sequential order. And you'll think, man, I hope I don't have to preach on that passage. And inevitably they fall on me. And this is one of those passages. So there's not some pressing issue in uh, the congregation uh, here at the Advent or uh, that we feel like that there's something that needs to be addressed specifically. Uh, but in fact, it's just uh, the order of going through 1 Corinthians. But I do want to say that uh, as we approach God's word, we don't want to stand back from it. Uh, but we also should be aware that we're a congregation of varying ages and stages in our Christian walks, and so we should maintain a decorum that allows us to hear and receive God's word. With that in mind, my aim is to preach a sermon in an appropriate manner uh, for those who are very young, as well as to those who are very old, to non-believers and believers are alike. And so as we uh, enter into this, let's hear what God is saying to us. Now, I'm only going to concentrate primarily on the first uh, three verses, uh, 9 through 12, rather four verses, and uh, I'm sorry, 9 through 11, those three verses, because they're really a continuation of what St. Paul was saying regarding lawsuits amongst believers. And he talks about the immorality that has been plaguing uh, the Corinthian church in general, it's manifesting itself in all kinds of ways, but it begins, to man it begins to manifest itself also more specifically in a sexual manner. And he gets to that in verses 12 and following, but I'm going to preach back into that when we get to chapter 7 next week. But as I've been looking through this passage and praying about it, three questions have come to mind. The first is, why should I listen to this? The second is, what is God saying? And the third is, what difference does it make in my life? Well, why should we listen to what Paul is saying? We have a propensity to avoid these passages and wish that even this evening we would skip over them. And we feel this way because they hit so close to home. None of us is sitting here saying, this has nothing to do with me or the world in which I live. So let's move on to something more applicable. But we want to move on because our hearts cannot bear it. The passage is all too applicable. We are like the Israelites at the bottom of Mount Sinai who say we cannot bear to hear from God directly. And so you speak to us, Moses. Stand between us and God, for his word is too much for us to bear. We might also say, well, we can move on because we already know what it says. But such a desire sheds light on the fact that God's word has not done its work on us and we'd rather keep it that way. 
There are others who will say, well, Andrew, if you decide to talk about these things, it will hurt our witness to the wider world. There are those who will come into our congregation, hear a sermon like this, and think, I'm never going to go back there again. But as a confession, I'll admit that there are times in my ministry where I've actually compromised the Word of God in order to gain the attention of a hearer. And in every instance I've done that, I've not only gained nothing in the end, but I've lost it all, including the one who I've sought to minister to. And the fact of the matter is that the only place that is not talking about these issues is the church. Everyone else in the world is talking about these things except for us. And finally, we should listen to this because it's God's word to us. I read recently an interesting article on the Smithsonian's display of Bibles that they currently have going on in Washington, D.C., and the one that caught my attention was published in 1807. And it was published in England, and it was intended to promote Christianity amongst African slaves throughout the British Empire and the United States. But the thing about this Bible for slaves is that it eliminated any text that had to do with God's liberation of his people. In fact, they got rid of the entire book of Exodus and the entire book of Revelation. And so a people were denied God's life-giving and liberating word. And by giving this Bible, we not only denied that, we denied them their own humanity as people made in the image of God. Now maybe we don't do this as blatantly as the Bible editors for those enslaved Africans, but what portions of Scripture are we tempted to omit as a way of making our own lives easier? As we move through this passage, we must keep in mind who God is. We don't have the luxury to say, well, this is just Paul, and Paul's got it wrong. As if the Holy Spirit has ducked out for a break while Paul writes chapters 5 and 6. No, this is God speaking to us here and now. And we have no choice but to listen. And so in light of that, if God is speaking, and we ought to listen, what is he saying? Now, Paul gives a list of the unrighteous that will, not that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is an all-inclusive list. It doesn't seem that anybody gets left out. And so none of us sitting here tonight should look at this list and think, he's not talking about me. Because the condemnation falls upon us all. But more specifically, this is no arbitrary list. For Paul says in verse 11, and such were some of you. He's doing a mental roll call of the church in Corinth. He's not just thinking about the adulterers, but Bob in the church in Corinth is an adulterer, or Sally, the greedy. He's there, he says, not in person but in spirit, earlier in the letter to the Corinthians. And so here he has the guts to look at them spiritually in the eyes. Some of you were these types of people. This was your identity. And yet, even today, though not a part of the church in Corinth, 
No one gets left out, and Paul looks us in the eyes as well. But it sounds as if Paul might be singling out particular sins over and against others. Is that what Paul is saying? That here are some really bad sins that will keep you out of heaven. But there are some other little sins and you can just kind of slide right in and you'll be fine. You'll just make it. Is that what he's saying? Well, in the first instance, no. Paul writes elsewhere that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 said, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. When it comes to sinfulness, there are not some who are more sinful than others. We are all in the same boat. We are all OS positive. So all of us are under the same condemnation and the same guilt as those he's addressing in Corinth. For the wages of sin is death, Paul tells us in Roman. That which we deserve, that which we've earned by our own human sinfulness is death. That's the entire human race. And yet, Paul is saying that there is something different about this list of sins. Let me give you an example of the difference he's trying to, to hit home or drive home for us. When you are being prideful, you are almost always unaware that you are being prideful in the moment. Someone later on might say to you, Andrew, you were really being obnoxious the other day. You were seething with pride. And it was a real discouragement. And upon reflection, I realized that, yes, I was being prideful. And I'm sorry. But in the moment, I didn't see it as prideful. But those things that Paul is listing here are things that are apparent to us in the moment when we're committing them. When a thief takes money... He doesn't think to himself, hey, wait a minute, that's not my money. He knows full and well that it's not his money, and yet takes it anyway. Or when you wake up the next morning with a heavy head, after having drink after drink after drink, you don't think, wow, how did I get drunk? You know full well why. And I also want to say that Paul is not speaking here of temptation. He's not saying that you won't be tempted. But he is saying here that deliberate transgressions such as these put one in a dangerous position spiritually. When I say deliberate, I mean that like the church in Corinth, rather than being ashamed by such behavior, we revel in it. We say to ourselves, all things are lawful for me. But if we are going about reveling in sin because we believe that Jesus has given us the freedom to do that, then we have misunderstood who Jesus is and we have misunderstood who we are. It is sin that reigns in us and not God. And yet, in spite of that condemnation, 
We also know that heaven is populated with the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, men who practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers. And so how can it be that Paul says this, and yet we know that the testimony of Scripture is that heaven is populated by sinful people, redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is because, Mar because Paul understands the power of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. Because the mark of a Christian is that you and I struggle with these things. If the Spirit were not in us, we would not be under any condemnation. We would not feel any conviction over this and would just go on about our merry business. But because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit and one of God's great works by the power of His Holy Spirit is the conviction of sin in the believer. We are grieved by it. And as we prayed earlier, the burden of it is too much. Do you really feel that? That when you find that the war that is going on in your heart and the thing that you don't want to do is the thing that you find yourself doing and the thing you want to do, you find yourself incapable of doing. Do you feel that the burden of it is all, is all too much to bear? Paul does not say that the believer won't continue to be tempted or that they won't fall into sin. They won't be given over to this temptation. But he does say that the burden of it can be lifted through the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been reading through Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan again, and I really love it. It's the second most popular work of English literature next to the Bible, and so I would encourage you to read it if you never have. And the scene that always gets me and stops me dead in my tracks is when Christian the Pilgrim finally makes his way to the cross of Christ, and his burden is removed. He's weighed down by this huge amount of baggage on his back, and no matter how hard he tries, he can't throw it off. And hear what John Bunyan says about that moment. Now I saw in my dream, that is Bunyan is seeing this all played out before his eyes, that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced in on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run but not without great difficulty, because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came to a, pl to a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below in the bottom a tomb. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosed from off his shoulders and fell from off his back and began to tumble and continued to do till it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in, and I saw it no more. Then was Christian glad and lightsome, and said with a merry heart, He hath given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian stood a while to look and wonder, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross should thus ease him of his burden. He looked, therefore, and looked again, even till the springs that were in his head sent the waters down his cheeks. Do you see that Jesus makes 
all the difference. That simply gazing upon the cross and seeing his rescue relieved Christian of the burden that he longed to throw off, but he could not in his own strength. This list of transgressors who will not inherit the kingdom of God are things that all too easily become our identity in the world in which we live. It's interesting to me in verse 12 that Paul says that I will not be enslaved or dominated by anything. That is, these things that he lists before can easily take hold of your life and create an identity for you. Sometimes we take hold of these ourselves. We say, but this is just who I am. Or in many other cases, people project it onto us and we can't seem to outrun it no matter how hard we try. As much as we try to outlive our past, people will always think of Bill, the thief. That's just who I am. That's how people know me. But when we come to Christ... He does not see us as any of those things. Yes, of course, he sees you in your sinfulness, but he also sees you as the object of his affection for whom Jesus has died. Do you know that when you come to Christ, he gives you a new name? He calls you son, daughter, Christian, and your identity is in him. And when you hear the enemy or the old Adam within your own heart say that your name is swindler, murderer, sexually immoral, you say, no, my name is Christian, and I am a child of God. In Christ, I am a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus told me, that I have been washed, I have been sanctified, I have been justified. That is who I am. And this list is a pack of lies. We often say around here that God loves you as you are, and that is certainly true. But that statement has been given over to gross misunderstanding. It would be more appropriate And more clear to say that God loves you in spite of who you are. There was a person who was attending the Advent who came to see me one day. And their big concern was that they felt, because of who they thought they were, that the congregation would not affirm them. That the Advent was not a place where they would feel affirmed. And to be honest with you, I started chuckling. They sort of looked at me and said, you're the most insensitive pastor I've ever met. And I said, well, maybe you'll be glad to know that here at the Advent, we don't affirm anybody. I don't get affirmed. You don't get affirmed in any identity apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is who we are. And the fact that you are a sinner maybe even a notorious sinner, means that you pre-qualify for a welcome from the Lord Jesus Christ. And so though not affirmed, you couldn't be more welcomed because as a sinner, you're in the right place. 
And so tonight, do you want to be made new? Are you to be found in Jesus? Is your identity in Him? Will you listen to Him this evening as He says to you, Come, my child, for whom I died, whom I have washed, justified, and set apart. I will make all things new. This is the difference that Christ makes in our lives. For you are not your own, but were bought with a price. Let us pray. Lord, it is so easy to get caught up in the identities that the world creates for us and even that our hearts create for us. And yet, Lord, we know that apart from you, we're completely lost. Lord, that we would not be defined by our past, nor even our present, nor our future, unless it's rooted in you. For we have no abiding place, no identity apart from you, Lord Jesus. And so tonight we pray that you would come into our struggling hearts. For those of us especially who struggle with these things, Lord, that we would be not left to ourselves, but you would do a great work by the power of your Spirit, that we might know who we are as a redeemed people in you and know what it means to serve you and not be dominated by anything that this world would offer. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.